It's awesome that people from all over the world traveling to tourist spots across and around the reservation see the work and are um, intrigued by it. But my primary audience and the people I'm responsible to is people on the reservation. Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Rob Kramer, the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. And I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we bring you our interview with photographer, public artist, activist, and physician, Chip Thomas. Chip moved to the Navajo or Diné Nation in Northern Arizona in 1987 to work as a physician in a community with limited health care and thus repay a National Health Services Corps scholarship. The plan was to stay there for four years. 34 years later, Chip Thomas is not <laughs> only still living and working as a physician in the Navajo Nation, he's also become an artist beloved by his community and increasingly by admirers from all over the world. Since 2009, Chip has been printing out large-scale enlargements of his photos of the Diné community and affixing them to structures throughout the Diné Nation, reflecting the beauty and stories of the people and their culture back to themselves. Sometimes the murals also tackle the many social and environmental issues, such as the sickening effects of uranium mining in the mid-20th century, that have challenged the Diné for generations. During the pandemic, Chip created murals to share vital health information with his community, which was, as we all know, disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Chip spoke to us from his home in Inscription House, Arizona. I asked him to tell us how he found the resilience to navigate the devastating past year in the Navajo Nation. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's an, it's an ongoing process. Um, the pandemic is still with us. Just, just... <laughs> The Thursday and Friday of this week, um, we got seven uh, positive tests back for coronavirus after not having had any over the past, say, five weeks or just a, uh, maybe one or two. So, you know, there were some people who attended a super spreader event, um, which I think was a religious event locally. And uh, so we were, you know, getting the virus type to see which strain we're, we're dealing with. But the point being, the pandemic is still with us. I'm still navigating all this. But um, again, I mean, the thing that is saving me is, okay, is the opportunity to go out and create art. Like right now, um, as I look outside, it's, um, I just looked at my thermometer and it's uh, 70 degrees. Um, I, I live at 6,500 feet. It snows in the winter. It's not unusual to get lows in the single digits here. And it's been, you know, cold pretty much um, for the past, for most of the winter. So um, just having an opportunity to go outside <laughs> and work, um, exercise helps me. I cycle still, you know, generating endorphins and encephalins. But I mean, I, you know, my, I, I think the focus of my art really is um, using it as a tool to build community. And within community, you know, there's opportunities to process all sorts of stuff. So for example, the UN World Health Organization got in touch with me within the past six months saying they're aware of the work that I'm doing and the impact it appears to be having. 
And uh, the World Health Organization is also aware that uh, parallel with the pandemic, there is um, an escalating mental health pandemic or crisis um, with, you know, more uh, suicides, um, eating disorders, depression, maybe even some of the gun violence that's happening now as a result of, you know, things that have happened during the pandemic. Um, with the amazing amount of loss, um, jobs, lives, and uh, so on. Yeah, so the Painted Desert Project, which I do, was is like one of five community-based art projects that the UN is going to work with over 2021 to come up with um, an art-focused response to community grieving and healing and after I finish this interview, I'll be driving to a really beautiful canyon site where there's an abandoned motel that's been stripped of this material. So it's been trashed. But, you know, we're going to lead an effort to uh, people coming together to clean it up and uh, maybe use it as a site for storytelling of the um, impact of the pandemic on the community. But, you know, also as an opportunity for healing coming together. So being in community, sharing with people, making art is what is helping me get through this. It's really a counterbalance to the intensity of the work that I do in the clinic. You know, um, a lot of times I will say in talking with people that the clinic work is all about trying to create an environment of wellness within the individual, you know, to restore them to optimal health. But the placing of what I consider positive images in the community is trying to create an environment of wellness in the community and how people are feeling about, I don't know, about themselves, about community. When you first arrived at the Navajo Nation, you, I'm sure you were seen as an authority because you were, you're an MD. How long did it take for you to be seen, to be trusted as an artist? Because what you do, you take such intimate photos, I think, and then, and then put them up in very public spaces, which is, um, I think, a scary thing to do for many people. How did you negotiate that relationship with the community? And did you make any mistakes along the way? Yes. <laughs> yes, mistakes have been made. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so... I, I'm doing this work in a community that doesn't have, say, the disposable income for there to be a lot of murals along the roadside, you know. So at the time I started doing my wheat pasting project, um, I wasn't necessarily putting work up in places where there was already street art. And, you know, it's a complicated history of photography with um, indigenous nations, you know and how they're represented and oftentimes idealized and made to seem static and represented in a way that, yeah, it doesn't give the impression that Native people are still here. But being influenced by the visual storytelling of Eugene Richards, Eugene Smith, the, basically the magnum group of photographers, I have always been about trying to get in there and go deep and to, um, you know, hear those stories and use the imagery as an opportunity to hopefully for, for people to learn more about the community and to hear some of those stories. But the trust building just takes time. There's an expression within the community 
that I learned certainly after I came that unless you've been around for a couple of years, people don't really take you into their trust. You know, it's really about them observing you and see, seeing if your words are consistent with your actions. And, you know, it's been a funny thing because I've worked with a number of people in the clinic over the years. And um, certainly there are other physicians whose interpersonal skills of communication are more effective than mine. <laughs> and I, I always felt that I wasn't as well liked as them. <laughs> um, I, um, you know, having been here for so long, people, you know, appreciate my commitment. And I, one of the things that I hear from patients that I appreciate is that they feel like I listen to them. And, and that I care, which makes sense because the art project is really coming from a place of love. I would like to think that when I engage people, engage community, I'm coming from a place of love. So by the same token, I would hope my medical practice is coming from a place of love, you know. And um, yes, I think uh, people pick up on that. And have, you know, like I said, they, they see the images, the project, you know, of putting pictures along the roadside is now primarily a conversation with the Diné people. It's awesome that people from all over the world traveling to tourist spots across and around the reservation see the work and are intrigued by it. But my primary audience and the people I'm responsible to is people on the reservation. For example, when I first started doing the work and wasn't really engaging the community, I thought, okay, how can I do this objectively so that no one group feels excluded here on the reservation? And it occurred to me that there are three primary spiritual practices on the reservation. There are people who are Christians. There are people who are traditionalists who still take part in traditional ceremonies and do things like sweats. And then there's the Native American church, which is the group of people who go into teepees for a night and um, have a prayer circle to bring community support to someone who's called the patient. But it also involves the ingestion of peyote. And I thought that by representing or having imagery from people in those communities, it would make the work more acceptable. <laughs> But um, so I put a photograph of a friend who had a peyote bud in his hand and um, he was showing it to me. So I photographed his, the palm of his hand and then made kind of a mandala out of his hand with the peyote bud and pasted that on the side of a little roadside stand, not knowing that the owner was a fundamentalist Christian who had absolutely no tolerance for the name of the church, <laughs> who, you know, took the piece down within 24 hours and then, you know, found me and berated me. Um, and this was at the time when no one knew who was putting pictures up. There was another example. There's a developer in Scottsdale who wants to put a development in on the east rim of the Grand Canyon, which is on Navajo Diné land. And he wants to put in a one-mile tram to take approximately 10,000 people a day down to a site in the Grand Canyon um, at the confluence of the Little Colorado River and the Colorado River with a restaurant and a little, to make it a little resort area. On land at the top of the canyon that has no development, it's in a community on the reservation that has an unemployment rate probably around 60%. I mean, there's just no jobs in that community. 
but the development itself is not su sustainable in terms of you know taking that many people to the site, which by the way is a site that's sacred <laughs> to many of the to all of the Pueblo tribes from this region, and it's also the area where the, the Zuni, the Hopi, would do their treks to get salt um, once a year. So the more traditional people, you know, were opposed to this development. And I realized, hey, I have a skill set that can amplify voices advocating for positive change within the community. So I approached the traditionalists and said, would you like me to <laughs> put some posters up along the ro roadside speaking to how you're feeling about this issue? And I worked with a couple matriarchs from the community to make imagery, which we put up. And um, there were some other people from the community who came to me and said, hey, look, um, <laughs> there are no jobs here. This is not your community. And, you know, why don't you go paste your your uh, own house? And they uh, they buffed or painted over everything. So, yeah, I've I've made mistakes along the way. So kind of along those lines with the impacts you've made, both as a physician and an artist in the community, Someone might say you're a change agent or you're a leader uh, or you're an artist leader. Do you, what role do you see yourself playing in your community these days? Well, you asked me that question. I just got a text for, from someone I called Medicine In for. And I am, um, oh, I missed uh -huh. the question. So given given the the your work as a physician and as an artist in this community, how do you view yourself in your role? You know, how would you label yourself? What What do you do in the community? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, how do I label myself? Everyone in the community knows me, you know, first and foremost, as a doctor, a doctor they can trust, someone they want to see, by and large. Um, and that's, you know, that's why I'm here. <laughs> um, and yes, I do art. Um, in the community, and I try to use it as a tool to build community. But I don't necessarily, you know, put that first and foremost when I'm. Well, it's, you know, it's an interesting thing because I mentioned earlier I went to Wake Forest and then I went to Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, and none of that came easily. <laughs> you know, I wasn't I wasn't um, a a scholarship student in that. Um, you know, I had to work for everything and just spent a lot of time studying. And I, art, on the other hand, is something that's all self-taught. You know, it's really kind of me um, expressing what I'm feeling, uh, speaking from my heart. Because of my medical training and because that's the work I've done, you know, like I said, everyone here knows me as a doctor. But And it, in truth, even though I worked in a dark room for my home dark room for 22 years. I never really thought of myself as an artist. It wasn't until I started going out into the community and playing with the architecture, you know, of walls and buildings that I started thinking of myself as an artist. When I started my art project in 2009, I had never heard of community practice. <laughs> I didn't go to art school. Um, um, I'm gonna take a step back further. I mentioned I'm from North Carolina. 69 in 68, the Raleigh public school system was de desegregated, and that's when busing started. And once you know kids got to the school they were going, 
<laughs> there was a lot of violence happening. And my, uh, my mom was a school teacher and the public school system. And they were, this was 68, you know, six, uh, 69. There was a lot going on in the country at that time. Uh, King was assassinated tomorrow, 1968. And uh, so my parents were concerned about the amount of violence in the public school system. And were looking at sending me to a military institute <laughs> in North Carolina or Virginia, which I really didn't want to do. But, you know, again, just a fortuitous thing happened where my parents, the summer of 68, no, the summer of 69, summer of Woodstock, <laughs> took a cruise with my grandma, who normally would have babysat me, or not, I wasn't a baby at the time, but who would have, I would have stayed with her uh, for three weeks. And uh, my father learned of this Quaker camp up in the mountains of North Carolina, where they do rafting in the river, horseback riding, camping, just all the things I love doing. I've never been horseback riding. but So I got to go into this um, small Quaker community uh, near in, in Silo um, in 1969. And the four of the guys in my tent were going to this school called the Arthur Morgan School, which was an alternative Quaker boarding junior high school with 24 kids. It's funny because I, it's I, you know the history of Black Mountain College. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this uh, school was kind of set up, yeah, like that, um, in that it was a work um, learning experience. The first time I went into a dark room, I was um, thirteen years old at the school. That summer, I got my first camera. I started shooting black and white film at that time. So, you know, the experience of making decisions by consensus and living, working, creating together was instilled in me at a, instilled in me at a young age. So when I am asked, when, in terms of being an agent of change in the community, that Junior high Quaker school experience was all about building community. Every spring, we would break up into small groups. And again, there were only 24 students in the school and do field trips to different parts of the country. And I twice went to, there's a Beaufort and a Beaufort. One is in North Carolina. The other one is in South Carolina. But we would go to the black community where the Gullahs and Geechees were. And there was actually a small black Quaker community there, but we would just volunteer and do community service in that community, you know, for the two weeks we, we were there. Yeah, that type of grounding and community has stuck with me and led to me being where I am now for 35 years, you know, doing kind of longitudinal work. I mean, that in and of itself, to have a position in a community for this long is becoming rare, you know. I think if there's any agent of change work, it just comes from being a part of a community and, you know, having an open uh, conversation with that community. And when I say open, it's one that everyone can see. What could be changed or reinvented in order to make sure that communities had access to art and that uh, their, as you call it, their overall wellness could be improved through art? Yeah, well, um, there I I saw a survey. I don't know, maybe three or four months into the pandemic this year, 
uh, or 2020, and um, it asks people to rank in order a list of people or occupations they consider the most essential and the occupations they consider <laughs> the least essential. <laughs> And uh, yeah, Uh-oh, you can see where, this makes me nervous. <laughs> yeah, you can you can see where where this is going. But uh, to make a long story short, um, yeah, people in healthcare, um, you know, responding to the emergency of the pandemic, were rated at the top. And at so the you're bottom. at the top and the bottom of the list. That's where right. I'm going with this. So I I represent both ends of the spectrum. So I'm actually <laughs> all about advocating for the include well i just a, a deeper appreciation of the value of art and you i think the only way communities get that <laughs> is when they see it and feel it you know it's like yeah i don't know that uh, the navajo nation would have decided and the navajo nation still hasn't decided say to invest in an arts program but people um, here appreciate the value of public art in a way that maybe they didn't 15 years ago. And there are more public art projects starting to happen on the Navajo Nation. For this UNWHO project I'm doing, I, I brought together a diverse group of people. Uh, there's seven of us on my team, but we represent community organizers, art therapists, artists, activists. Half of the group is native, actually over half. So I think, you know, when people form teams to look at any type of civic engagement or even the construction of parks and buildings, it would be nice to have someone with an arts background as a part of the planning team. Because, you know, I think artists are great at thinking outside the box and maybe taking chances that people in other disciplines are less likely to uh, do. Let's say a young artist is listening to this and wants to do the kind of socially, uh, kind of the community practice work that you're doing, maybe go into a rural community and uh, be of service through her art. Is there one piece of crucial advice you would give this artist? Yeah. (laughs) Breathe. (laughs) Give it time. You know, it really helps to come to a place and just listen, you know, not to come in with ideas and solutions. For example, one of the things that occurred to me, um, the UN asked me why my project is necessary, wanting me to, to, I guess, justify it. And it occurred to me that my project is not necessary. I am working in a community where uh, of people whose ancestors came to this area 10 to 40,000 years ago, depends on which migration one considers from the Siberian area. And, you know, so the people here are resilient. They have ways of adjusting to times of privation, such as we're going through now. So it's really not what can we bring to help them, but what can we go and uh, patiently listen and learn from and maybe work with and build relationships around. But that that doesn't happen quickly. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I'm fortunate in that I have an excuse for uh, being here. You know, I have my job that allows me to be in this community and to have these interactions. It would be hard if I were living off the Navajo Nation land and trying to maintain these relationships. And you also, it sounds like you have a, a deep, a deep love 
for the place. It sounds yeah. like you do have a, some, a somewhat spirit, spiritual connection to it. You are invested in the geography and the culture deeply. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, um, not to get religious, but, um, you know, I, was it Moses who spent time in the desert and had a transformation? I mean, there's something transformative just about being in a kind of stark but beautiful place over an extended period of time, you know? So I guess I would tell a young artist to go to the desert and <laughs> and wait. You know what I really take away from this interview is uh, his humility and respect for the community uh, and realizing uh, how long it took for him to put down demonstrat- demonstrably deep roots in the community in order to be mm. trusted. Right. Right. It reminds me of of, of a story uh, in in one of the three cities I live with in recent years. I'd, I'd want to call this person out, so I want to be vague about where it was. <laughs> I went to at the public library. I went to a presentation by local artists about kind of creative placemaking, and one one woman got up. She and a partner, I think they're both white women, had opened up a contemporary art gallery in a gentrifying historically african-american neighborhood Mm, interesting and she explained that right away she and her partner had set up a program where they would bring in local neighborhood kids to teach them how to appreciate contemporary abstract art Mm. and you know i don't want to fault her intent because she was clearly wanting to do the right thing but i I doubt that if she'd spent more than a few months listening to what the community wanted she would have come up with the same plan. I mean, how many of the parents in this rapidly gentrifying neighborhood were concerned that their children didn't appreciate contemporary art, you know? Right. Chip reminds me that no one, not even a well-meaning artist, can presume to know what a community wants until they've not only lived in that community for a good period of time, but also shown themselves to be humble and respectful, right? Oh yeah, and and you know now he's thirty plus years into it. You know, you're making me think of a couple other examples like that, where a person I know moved to a small rural community in the state uh, he and his wife lived in, and one of the first things he chose to do, because they knew nobody and no one knew them, um, but one mm-hmm. of the first things he chose to do was join the volunteer fire department, and mm. found quickly it was a great way to get ingratiated into the community because it was a place of need and it was a place of, of where the community supports itself, you know? Right. I do wish more artists were living and working in rural communities. You know, we hear so much about the right. rural city divide in this country. And right. one way to bridge that would be for artists to, to work in rural communities. But, you know, rural relocation can't can't be, uh, relocation can't be just like, I'm going to go spend the summer in such and such place. You know, right? Right. <laughs> right. An, artist exactly. needs, an artist needs to demonstrate her commitment to putting down those roots yes. and to listen to the community. Yeah, who and how they serve and what they're there to do. And just looking, I, I encourage people to go to our website, uncsa.edu slash art restart, because we do have pictures of some of his art up there. Right. And it's it's so beautiful. It's hard to describe how beautiful it is. And I hope we get to see it in person someday, Rob, because God, yes, seeing it in the landscape must be a completely different experience. Yeah, yeah, for sure. If you enjoyed this interview, please leave us a rating which will make it easier for more people to find us. And also give us positive reinforcement, which I never <laughs> desperately right. need. Please, people, <laughs> it's desperate for it. 
our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. And I'm Rob Kramer. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.